Well, please open your Bibles to James <coughs> chapter 1. Again, that's the letter of James chapter 1. Uh, when I was little, I used to visit my great-grandma Dotson. And by the front door of her house, there was a sign. I don't, I don't know why she hung it there. And uh, I don't even really understand why I remember it for that matter. Uh, but the sign said, Just about the time we think we're about to make both ends meet, somebody goes and moves the ends. And you know that feeling, don't you? The frustration that happens when someone comes along and disrupts your plans. Well, very often that someone is God, right? And He'll disrupt your plans, oddly enough, when you're trying to do a good thing. Maybe you're trying to learn to budget your finances so you can be more generous to other people. Maybe you're trying to do something nice for your spouse, like clean up the house or something like that. Maybe you're just trying to to get up early in the morning to spend time in Bible study. Point is, you're you're not sinning, you're not being disobedient, you're actually meaning to do something good, something that, that pleases God and brings Him glory. And then something comes along to disrupt your plans. That could be something big or catastrophic, like a car accident or a a giant tree limb falling on your roof, which suddenly blows apart your neat little budget. Or it could be something relatively small and annoying, like a knock on the door or an unexpected phone call. Either way, you're trying to obey God, and then something comes along and disrupts those plans. It's very easy to wonder in those situations, what's, what's God doing here? Why is He making this so difficult for me? That's the question that we're exploring for several weeks now from James 1, 13 to 15. And it's, and it's a question that we're now going to see answered in today's passage, which is James 1, 16 to 18. Again, that's James 1, 16 to 18. Let's begin by reading the passage in its context, starting all the way back in verse 2 and continuing through verse 18. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth, 
that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. During the gold and silver rushes of the 19th century, hundreds of thousands of Americans moved west into states like California, Colorado, Arizona, and Nevada in hopes of striking it rich. And many did. Uh, But of course, many more did not. Of those who did not, many found themselves in an incredibly precarious financial position. You see, it wasn't uncommon for individuals or families to sell everything they had to move west and and to purchase a plot of land to mine. And when those mines then turned up empty, they risked losing everything. And so the more resourceful and, dare I say, dishonest of these prospectors devised a way to recoup some of their losses through a scheme called salting. What is salting? Salting. True West Magazine describes the process like this. Quote, they say the seller would take ore from a productive mine and carefully scatter it about his non-productive property in hopes of closing a sale on the claim. Others might take a shotgun, load the charge with gold dust, and blast the walls of the shaft, impregnating them with particles of gold. Gold was malleable and would embed itself into the rock, giving the worthless claim a highly mineralized facade. So basically, the prospector would place gold or silver in the mine in order to deceive prospective buyers into thinking that the mine promised more riches than it actually did. Buyers quickly caught on to these schemes, and so salters had to sometimes take a more creative approach to their deception. Quote, The game of buying and selling a worthless mine could conceivably become a matter of who could outwit whom. The seller might impregnate the walls with gold, but the wise buyer might ask to have the walls blasted to see what was inside the rock. Trying to stay one step ahead, the seller could install gold into the head sticks of his dynamite, and when the charge went off, the interior would be salted. To counter this, the buyer would insist that they use dynamite sticks he brought along for just such an occasion. Listen to this. They say bichloride of gold or a chemical liquid was used for medicinal purposes, such as alcoholism and kidney ailments. Uh, When taken internally, it will pass through the body, exiting the body with a high assay value. A seller bent on cleverly salting his mind could load himself on the substance and salt any crack or crevice as nature moved him. (laughs) Again, that's that's, that's pretty resourceful, right? It takes a pretty clever con artist to figure out that they could try to salt a mind by drinking a medicine for alcoholism. But then again, there was a lot at stake. If, If one could successfully salt a mine then they could recoup their losses by tricking an unwitting greenhorn into buying a mine that they would otherwise never buy if they had known the truth. Over the past several weeks, we've been studying the source of sin from James 1, 13 to 15. And and one of the things that we've learned is that temptation is very much like a salted mine. Our sinful flesh is the prospective buyer. It's out looking for pleasure. It's looking for riches, for the promise of happiness. But it's ignorant. It possesses some knowledge, but its rebellion against God has darkened the mind, and so it lacks understanding. Uh, Satan, you could say, is the seller. Now, in reality, there are multiple sellers, not just Satan. In fact, James even goes so far as to inform us that our flesh is actually a seller as well as a buyer. But for the sake of illustration, let's say that Satan is the one doing the selling on this particular day. 
He owns several mines, idols, all of them, and he wants the sinner to buy a stake in one of these several mines. The problem is that each of the mines are utterly worthless. They don't hold any real value. All they do is bankrupt the buyer. And so what does he do? He salts the mine. He makes it appear like the mine is profitable, that it will yield untold amounts of wealth. And he does this in order to to trick the buyer into making a purchase that they would otherwise never make. And because the flesh is ignorant, it goes along with the scheme. It makes the purchase, and the sinner ends up bound to a worthless mine that's only going to bring them to ruin. Again, this is how temptation works for the Christian. When we try to understand where our sin comes from, James tells us that it comes from inside of us. It's it's the result of our own desires. In short, no one forces us to sin against our will. We sin because we want to. And yet a lot of times, it does feel like we're sinning against our will. How does that work? Why does it feel that way? Well, it feels that way because we have the Holy Spirit resident inside of us, pushing us to obedience. In this way, our desires are conflicted. We want to do good, but we still end up doing evil. That doesn't mean that we're sinning against our will. It means that we have more than one thing that we want, and we just end up choosing the thing we want to do the most, which very often happens to be sin. But how can that be? How can sin end up winning out in spite of the fact that we have the Holy Spirit residing inside of us? How can our will be directed towards sin even though the Holy Spirit compels us to holiness? Well, it happens according to our faith, or or stated negatively, according to our lack of faith. We act according to what we believe to be most compelling when we believe that obedience is what's best for us, when, when righteousness is what we desire the most, then we obey. We act righteously. But when it's disobedience, when it's idolatry, when that's the most compelling, then we disobey. And the problem is that although you and I have the Holy Spirit inside of us convicting us of the truth, and through that conviction compelling us to righteousness, we're still far too ignorant to remain completely free from the power of sin. Temptation comes along, it makes a a promise of instant satisfaction, and we believe. We are deceived by temptation's false promises, and so our flesh eagerly jumps in on the offer, and the end result is that our will is then taken captive by the flesh and directed towards sin. Here in James 1, James' readers are struggling with the implications of trials. There are these disruptions that are taking place in their lives. These are, these are Christians, remember. And it would seem that many of them have probably experienced some form of persecution for their faith. In other words, they're suffering, but they're not suffering because of any kind of disobedience. Rather, it's their faithfulness, it's, it's their obedience that's caused this suffering. Well, as that's happening, they're finding themselves struggling with these incredibly strong desires to disobey and rebel. And as they try to sort out where these desires are coming from, at least some of them are wanting to begin to assign blame to God. They think that God must be compelling them to sin. They think God wants them to fail. They they can't think of any other way to explain either the source or the purpose of their trials than to say that God's doing it. 
They can only think that God's compelling them to sin because He apparently wants them to fail. James has already explained the source of their temptation back in verses 13 to 15. He says that they're being lured and, and enticed, carried away by their own desires. So God has nothing to do, it. He, to do with it. He's not the reason for their sin. Now in verses 16 to 18, he starts to get to the purpose. Yes, God is orchestrating the trial in their life, but it isn't to make them sin. That's for another purpose. And what's interesting about this passage is how James starts off. Look here at verse 16. James says, Do not be deceived, my brothers. Are you seeing this? Can you, can you see what's happening here? There are these Christians that are saying, I don't want to sin, but I can't help it. It's not under my control. God's making me do it. And James has just told them this isn't true. He just told them this isn't where their sin's coming from. It's not coming from God. And now in verses 17 to 18, he's going to tell them that neither is it God's intent to make them stumble, per se. Like, it's not as if God is bringing them into trials because He wants them to fail. Evil evil is not His intended goal. It's something else. And then sandwiched in between these two thoughts is this exhortation, Do not be deceived, my brothers. And what this shows us, brothers and sisters, is that this thought that God wants you to sin, that He'll even make you sin, is in and of itself a lie designed to keep you in sin. I mean, after all, if God has it in His mind to make you sin, then then what can you really do about it, right? That's the complaint that's brought up in Romans 9 as Paul explains God's sovereign mercy. The hypothetical objector asks, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? They're trying to pass the blame on God by saying, why is he so upset with me? He's the one who made me this way. He's the one who's making me do this. And if he made me this way, what am I supposed to do? I mean, can I resist the will of God? And and when one thinks this way, the inevitable result is sin. Either the sinner thinks this thought because they want to sin, but they need a way to rationalize it. So their conscience won't bother them. And so they they sear their conscience by blaming their sin on God. They They say He's the one responsible for it, not them. Or the sinner simply develops this thought by a sincere mistake, and the end result is they think they're completely helpless to do anything about their sin, and so they stop trying. Either way, the result is the same. Sin is the product. This entire line of thinking is nothing but a clever ruse designed to allow the flesh to maintain its control over the Christian. Just like prospectors got wise to the the schemes of of mind salters, and so the mind salters had to up their game and develop more ingenious methods to deceive their potential buyers, so also is the case with sin. Just as the Christian figures out temptation schemes and seeks to defeat their sin through obedience to God, the flesh ups its game. And as trials hit, it whispers in the Christian's ear, why is this so difficult? God must want you to fail. He must be working against you. And if He's working against you, what's the point? I mean, He can't be a very good God, right? Who'd want to serve a God like that? And even if you did, it's not like you can resist His will. So you might as well stop trying. James sees all this taking place and he tells his readers, do not be deceived, my brothers. 
And then he begins to dispel this deception with a series of spiritual truths. He's already disclosed two of these truths back in verses 13 to 15 to the idea that God is a source of sin. James has said first that God cannot be responsible for their sin because God is entirely sinless. Second, he explained that sin is rooted in their own desires. Now as he begins to address the purpose of trials, he discloses a couple of more spiritual truths. Let's go ahead now and look at the first of these truths together. Uh, Once again, in this passage, there are two truths that explain God's purposes in trials. Two truths which are designed to dispel this deceptive and enslaving thought that God wants us to fail. And if it's at all helpful, you can think of this passage almost like a photographic negative of verses 13 to 15. For example, in verse 13, the Christian says, I am being tempted by God. And this idea is apparently based on the concept that God himself possesses conflicting desires, that he himself vacillates between good and evil. Well, here James says, number one, truth number one, God only gives good gifts. God only gives good gifts. Verse 17, after exhorting his brothers not to be deceived, James explains, saying, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. There are two parts to this verse, if you're paying attention. First, there's an assertion. The assertion occurs in the first half of the verse, and it's the claim that every good and perfect gift comes from above, that is, from heaven, from God. And by the way, James makes this assertion, there appears to be a bit of a, a nuance in this point. It can sound like he's being repetitive here when he says that both every good gift and then every perfect gift is from above. That sounds pretty repetitive. And and that may be the case here. James may be seeking to do nothing more than emphasize his point through a kind of poetic device with this repetition of these two similar ideas. However, though you can't see it here in the ESV, the, the words for gift here are different in the Greek. They're different nouns. And without getting too much into the technical details, the first noun is, is of a type that tends to stress the action of giving. Uh, The New English translation, for instance, doesn't translate this word as gift, but giving. It says all generous giving. There you see the verbal element to the noun. The second noun is a type that tends to emphasize the result of the giving. Hence the translation gift. Uh, You combine this with the fact that the second adjective also tends to emphasize the result. It is a perfect and complete gift. And it has led at least one commentator to conclude that James is trying to make a very specific point here. He's saying that both every attempt to give good things is from God. That's the first part. Every good gift, or literally giving every good giving. And not only that, but also every good result is also from God. So basically everything that's good, both in intent and result, it all goes back to God. He's the source of all of it. Now, I think we need to be careful here in how we read this assertion. What this verse does not mean is that if we deem something good, then it must be from God. After all, there's a flow here, right? James is saying everything that's good comes from God. That should mean that if something is good, then it must come from God. That's a very basic logic, right? 
What we have to be careful about, though, is how we define this term good. James doesn't define what is good here. And if we take that ambiguity to mean that whatever I deem to be good is from God, then we can end up with some very troubling and wrong conclusions. There are all types of sins that we find pleasing. And if we were to take what James says here at face value, then we could try to conclude that those sins must be right, since they appear so good. And James says that everything that's good comes from God. You can't do that. You can't do that. James doesn't exactly define good here, but with how he phrases this statement, I think we have a good idea of what he deems to be good from the rest of this letter. For example, this word for perfect, we find it back in verse 4, when James says, "...let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." The idea there seems to be that holiness, sanctification, is good. In the same way, he speaks of this perfect gift that comes, uh, comes from above. Well, later in chapter 3, he speaks of the wisdom that comes from above. Incidentally, we also find him telling the Christian to ask God for wisdom back in verse 5, and that when they do this, God gives generously, same terminology coming up again, without reproach. So it would appear that wisdom is also likely one of these good and perfect gifts. In short, James would tend to associate the blessings that God gives with righteousness. That may sound strange to us to think that holiness is a kind of gift, but that's only because we're so prone to be fooled by the deceptiveness of sin. We think obedience is bondage and disobedience freedom because our minds have been darkened by the power of sin. We've been deceived. If we could see clearly, then we would say along with the psalmist, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. I think we have to keep this point in mind when James writes this verse. Yes, every good thing that comes to us is from God, but not everything we like is necessarily good. What James means by good are going to be gifts that God deems to be good, and that includes things like the knowledge of God, and the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and the wisdom to see through sin's deception. And that fits the context of this passage. James readers think that God is trying to make them sin, and James' answer is to say, no, God doesn't make you sin because He only gives good gifts. The implication is that God acts to make us holy, not to make us sin. So, there's the assertion that God only gives good gifts. In the second half of this verse, we find the reason for this assertion. Again, there's two parts of this verse. First, verse, uh, there's two parts of this verse. First, James makes the assertion that God only gives good gifts. In the second part, he explains the basis or the reason for this assertion. He says that every good gift comes from above, quote, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now I think the logic here is a little foreign to us. If you've ever read this verse and kind of been puzzled by it, it's because what James is getting into here, the logic here is a little foreign to us. But it's really interesting, I think, when you understand it. And when you understand it, I think this is also a very convincing argument that James presents here. Uh, First, to understand James' point, you have to understand 
that in Jewish theology, light represents good. It represents knowledge. Darkness, on the other hand, represents evil and ignorance. You see this come out, for instance, in 1 John 1, 5-8. John says, This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, and we all know what's meant there, right? That's sin. He says, We lie and do not practice the truth. Right? There's where you see in darkness associated with deception. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We see this play between light and darkness, truth and ignorance, or deception. In John 1, 4-5, when speaking of Jesus, John says this, he says, "...in Him was life, and the life was the light of men." The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Uh, likewise, Jesus says, in Nicod- says to Nicodemus in John three nineteen to 21 He says, And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Uh, That last statement, by the way, that whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God, that's a very interesting statement given what James says here in verse 17. Because once again, if every good giving and every perfect gift is from God, then where do you think James would say our righteousness comes from? It doesn't come from ourselves, right? It would have to come from God. Well, that's what John says too. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. He sources the righteousness back in God. And we're going to come back to this idea as we get into verse 18. Right now, though, the point I want to make is that for the Jew, light represents goodness and knowledge, even life. Darkness, on the other hand, represents evil and ignorance and death. Jesus, for instance, calls the eye the lamp of the body. And He says that if the eye is healthy, meaning whole or singular in its devotion to God, then the whole body will be full of light. On the other hand, if it is bad, or literally in the Greek, wicked or evil, then the whole body will be full of darkness. You go to the book of Revelation, and one of the striking things about the New Jerusalem is that there is no night there. Have you ever stopped to think about that? It says, it says two times. It emphasizes the point. Two times John says that there will be no night there because the Lord God will be their light. Darkness is, is, is completely expelled and that coincides with the perfect righteousness and knowledge of this city. There's no more death, no more suffering, no more sorrow. And so also there is no more night. Now, this idea probably isn't too foreign to us, right? This idea that light is associated with goodness or wisdom. Lots of cultures associate light with goodness and wisdom. Lots of cultures associate darkness with ignorance and evil. What you may be 
less familiar with is the fact that to the Jew, the movement of the heavenly bodies also serves as a constant witness to God's faithfulness and mercy. Again, we're probably less apt to observe this point. After all, we're not exactly an agricultural society anymore, so many of us probably fail to see the mercy that God displays in the consistent change of the seasons. In the same way, very few of you probably ever look up at the stars at night and discern the months and the seasons by the measure of their movements, right? But for a people without the electric light and without cell phones to set the date and the time by satellite, these things were common observations. And what it showed them was that not only was God kind in supplying them the weather that they needed to grow their crops in their due season, but He was also incredibly faithful in appointing those seasons to follow along a consistent and predictable pattern. I mean, understand that the, the, the Jewish calendar, their festivals, right? They were designed around the growing and the harvesting seasons. And so as they celebrated the acts of God's deliverance from Egypt, they also remembered the faithfulness and mercy of their God as it was displayed in their seasons. You see this fact bear itself out a couple of times in the Old Testament. For example, uh, after the flood, God accompanies His promise never to flood the earth again with water, with a promise to give the earth consistent seasons. He says, Genesis 8.22, While earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Again, you may not think about that promise very often because it's so common that you just assume, right, that these things are going to happen. You've never not seen summer turn into fall or fall into winter and winter into spring and so on. It's the only thing you've ever known. And so you just assume that. You may even subtly think about the seasons much in the same way that the deist does, as if God just wound up the universe like a watch, set it in motion, and then just walked away. But that's not the way the Bible talks about these things. According to Genesis 8, the reason why all you've ever known is consistent seasons since the time you were born is because God has set things up this way. I mean, you can try to assign those sort of things to the tilt of the axis of the earth and so on, but who laid the foundations of the earth? Who determined its measurements? Who stretched out the line upon it and laid its cornerstone? It's God. God is the one who wrote the laws of physics, and He's the one who determined to place the earth in a relatively boring, predictable solar system. The reason why these things are so consistent for us is because God made them that way. In Jeremiah 33, God wants to demonstrate that He'll never break His his covenant with David. And He uses the movement of the heavenly bodies to demonstrate that He'll bring these promises to pass. He says, Jeremiah 33, 22-21, Thus says the Lord, If you can break My covenant with the day and My covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also My covenant with David My servant may be broken, that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and My covenant with the Levitical priests My ministers. The point clearly is that God is not going to break His promise. He's going to bring to pass everything He said with the same sort of consistency and faithfulness with which He brings morning and evening every single day. 
I don't know about you, but personally, I find this really interesting. You know, people sometimes wonder. They, they, they think if God exists, then why doesn't He just show Himself to us? Right? And, and the answer to that question is He does. He does show Himself to us. Every single time the sun rises at its appointed time, every single time the stars move along their course, He shows us His handiwork, His character, through the order and consistency of what's been made. Again, people want proof of God. And a lot of times by that, they mean they want miracles. The problem is that a consistent display of miracles would go against God's purposes in Revelation. See, see, when people demand miracles, what they're asking for is the supernatural. And that right there shows their fault. They already think that there's a realm called the natural in which God does not operate. And then there are supernatural events in which God comes in from outside and punctuates the natural order with His power. But that's not how it works. Listen, guys, if by supernatural we mean those events that occur according to the direct intervention of God, then there's a sense in which this is all supernatural. Because the Scripture says that the only reason why the universe exists from one moment to the next is because God wills it into existence. Your next breath, this very moment, is a miracle in the sense that it doesn't happen unless God actively, consciously wills it to happen. We are upheld every moment of every day by His hand. This is all supernatural in this, that sense. This is all a miracle in that sense. And so when someone wants a miracle, what they're really asking for is, is not for God to directly intervene in His creation. He does that all the time, every moment of every day. Really what they're asking for is for God to act within His creation inconsistently. They want Him to bend the rules of what He's established. They want Him to perform the unexpected, things that we can't explain. (laughs) Guys, have you ever thought of what our universe would be like if God did that on a consistent basis? Have you ever wondered how we might conceive of the universe if God regularly demonstrated His power by changing the rules? We'd view the universe as unorganized and chaotic. I mean, the the whole basis of the scientific method, for instance, the basis for growth and knowledge and understanding of this created order works on the basis that these types of interruptions are incredibly uncommon. It makes sense for God to accompany special revelation with signs and wonders in order to demonstrate that, that this message comes from the one who controls all things. But apart from that kind of accompanying message, miracles wouldn't do anything for us but confuse us. We wouldn't see them as proof for anything because then we take them for granted in much the same way that we take the seasons or our next breath for granted. We'd see them as common and relatively unremarkable just as we already see everything around us that points to God as common and unremarkable. Only then we'd ascribe the existence of miracles to a chaotic and disordered universe which at best points to an unpredictable and capricious God. You see, miracles would be contrary to the purposes of God. God does mean to reveal Himself to the world, and He does so every single day. Only the way He chooses to reveal Himself is in a way that's consistent with His character. And since He is faithful and merciful, that means He sets 
the universe and the world up in a way that's consistent and predictable. It's just like Peter points out in 2 Peter 3. Unbelievers look out on the fact that the world continues from one day to the next without any major interruptions, without God coming back in an awesome display of judgment. And what do they see? What do they think that that consistency is a sign of? They think it's a sign of the fact that God isn't there. Or at the very least, that He's not going to judge the earth. They think it's a sign of the fact that the Christian proclamation of the Messiah is false. 2 Peter 3, 3, it says, Scoffers will come in the last days following their own sinful desires. They will say, where's the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of the creation. But how does Peter interpret these same events? He gives the answer in verses 8 to 9, saying, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So how does Peter interpret the slowness of God? How does he interpret the consistency of His creation? It's a sign of God's mercy. It's a sign of His faithfulness. The fact that things are so consistent should point us to the fact that our God is a good God who gives good gifts. It's as the hymn says, right? Summer and winter, springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above join with all nature in manifold witness to His great faithfulness, mercy, and love. So once again, verse 17 now, these two foundational thoughts lurking in the background. Uh, first, there's the fact that light represents goodness and wisdom and life. And then second, there's the fact that the consistency of the heavens point to the faithfulness and mercy of God. Now, read verse 17 one more time and see if you can pick up on the logic here. James says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And just so you know this phrase, Father of lights, it's actually the Father of the lights. The Father of the lights. The word Father, of course, of course points back to God's role as Creator. So what's James doing here? He's pointing the reader back to God's work in creation. When in His very first act of creating, God said, Let there be light. And then later assigned the light to shine forth from the heavenly bodies. He's reminding the readers that God is the creator of light. That He brought forth light out of darkness. And then He appointed an order by which this creation would be governed. The point that James is making here is that God is quite literally the creator of every good and perfect thing. All wisdom and knowledge and life, everything that's righteous and good and pure, it all finds its source back in the One who spoke, let there be light. And this God not only created the light, but He also gave shape to the earth. It was, it was without form and void, and God both formed it and filled it. The consistency and order of the earth also comes from Him. And so the creation points back to God, and what it shows us is that God is both good and faithful. Right? 
He's not the one to say one thing one minute and then change his mind the next and do something else. You see it play out before your eyes every single day, this testimony to the goodness and faithfulness of God. As Balaam declares in Numbers 23.19, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Or as God Himself declares in Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Now think about that. God's completely consistent in His purposes, as consistent as the, the clockwork movement of the heavenly bodies, and that is the basis of Israel's preservation, not their righteousness. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. They're fickle and unchanging. One day they love God, and then the next they don't. But God's not that way. He made promises to His people, and regardless of their actions, He will see those promises fulfilled. That's why they're not consumed. Now, His character is good, and it will always be good. That can't change. Uh, The word for coming down here, by the way, is the word katabino. And the way it's expressed here, it points to a continuous or repeated action. Uh, the idea is almost is, is, is that these gifts are just constantly showering down from God in heaven. So not only does He never mix in bad with the good, but the idea is that He never even stops sending the good. He's just continually raining down blessing upon blessing upon blessing on His people. Again, it's really the only thing He can do. It's, it's completely inconsistent with His character to do any, anything else. And so what this means is that we can know that the trials that God sends, whatever their purpose may be, we can know that they are always, always for our good. Next week we're going to come back to this passage and we're going to explore the second truth in this passage. This is where James is finally going to start to nail down the purpose of trials. And as we get into that, there's really going to be so much to say about what God is doing in trials. We'll see that there really is tremendous benefit when we receive trials. Trials really are a great gift, and we really should rejoice over them, as James tells us back in verses 2 to 4. But I don't want us to jump to that point yet, because I don't want what we have to learn there, and again, there's a lot to say there, I don't want what we have to learn there to distract you from what James is saying here, because this point Here in verses 16 to 17, this point is really the more significant of the two. You see, I want to warn you up front. I'm going to try to explain to you this wonderful wonderful purpose that God has for us in trials and how trials uniquely bring this purpose about. But even after I explain all of that, that doesn't necessarily mean that the trials you endure are always going to make sense. You can know everything that I'm about to explain to you in verse 18, and the trials that you encounter can still be confusing. They can still drive you to the point of despair. And so what's the fundamental reality that you have to know if you're going to persevere in trials? It's what James is saying here, that God is good. And He only knows how to give good gifts to His children. 
when everything is confusing and you just can't seem to understand why God would make you suffer to the extent that He's making you suffer, the one thing that you have to know, the one thing that you can know, that you can trust in, is that God is good. And that He only knows how to give good gifts to His children. If you can cling to that one fundamental truth, then you can make it. You can persevere. You don't have to understand all the reasons why for the trial. You just have to know that God is good. And so there is a reason. Remember, the power of temptation lies in its deception. It's when we believe temptation's promises, as well as the lies that it spreads about our God, that our will is made captive to the power of sin. And the notion that the reason why God is making you suffer is simply because He wants to hurt you, that's a big lie. In fact, I think it's fair to say that it's the oldest lie. But it isn't true. God cannot desire your hurt, Christian. That cannot be His ultimate goal because that would be completely inconsistent with who He is. I mean, the one who created light out of darkness, why would you ever think that He would find pleasure in your pain? Or find joy in your wickedness? And the one who gave order to the heavens, why would you ever think that He would change His mind? So He's not going to give good gifts one minute and then evil ones the next. No, He's always going to give good gifts. And so the trials you're facing, they have to be good. Whatever their purpose, at the very least you can know, you can know that God means them for your good. It is by your endurance that you will gain your life, so do not be deceived, my brothers and sisters. No matter how intense the trial is, set it in your mind that you will yet believe that God is good and that He means good for you. For as long as you believe this fundamental truth, you will persevere by faith. Let's pray.